When you are the parent of a three-year-old, you often have to force them to apologize. Okay, so you go to a church event and your three-year-old son whacks some girl. And what do you say? You say, Johnny, we don't hit. Say you're sorry. And Johnny is up there and Johnny has a look on his face and his arms are crossed. Um, there he is. He looks like this kid right here. Say you're sorry, Johnny. No, no, no. Say you're sorry. It takes some effort to get Johnny, because in Johnny's mind, the girl deserved it, man. Bam, she just had what was coming to her. And so, you know, you go through this when you have a three-year-old. And so eventually, Johnny blurts out, I'm sorry, but he doesn't really mean it oftentimes. From an early age, we're trained that when we hurt somebody, we owe them something. Most of the time, we owe them an apology. Sometimes we owe them restitution. When you're a kid and you destroy your sister's Barbie doll, sometimes mom and dad are going to take the Barbie doll price out of your allowance for the next, you know, 16 weeks or whatever it takes in order for you to, to buy your sister a new Barbie doll. You would think with all of this parental training involved when it comes to hurting other people and having to say you're sorry that by the time we became grown-ups, we would just be amazing at it, Right? That we would be wonderful, it would be unicorns and rainbows and, and meadows with flowers, and it would just be awesome all the time. You don't have to look any further than the typical marriage today, right? Are you really sorry? No, 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 I don't think you mean it. You said it, but you, I don't think you're sorry. In fact, I don't think you're sorry that you hurt me. I think you're just sorry you got caught, right? These are the kinds of conversations that play out among husbands and wives, when somebody hurts you, getting an apology matters, and it's not just what they say, I'm sorry, but it's how they say it. You want them to be contrite. You want them to be genuinely upset that they stepped on your toes, that they did something that hurt you and wronged you. The problem is we don't always get that kind of apology, do we? And sometimes they don't just hurt us once, they hurt us over and over again. When somebody hurts you, I want, to, I want to suggest that they're taking something from you. They're taking your reputation. They're taking your time. They're taking an opportunity away from you. They're taking a job that should have been yours. You've had coworkers, right, that schmoozed the boss, did an end run. It should have been your promotion, and then Susie Q got it. I hate Susie Q, right? And then you're having conversations with your husband about Susie Q. Well, she got transferred. Um, this plays out when you have a parent die. Dad dies and your brother gets the gun collection and you're mad at your brother because he got it. It was supposed to be yours. Mom dies and cousin so-and-so gets Grandma Irma's china from Sweden and you're all bent out of shape because it should have been yours, right, people? I, I had a friend whose parents divorced. It was acrimonious. She was 10 years old. This is what she says. My dad stole my childhood from me, forced me to grow up too soon. Um, I had a friend who was abused by her uncle. She says, my uncle stole my ability to trust other people, took it from me. Um, I have another friend who um, had a really good friend of his gossip about him to the point where see, he lost several friendships and it wasn't true what was said. And to hear him talk about it, he says, man, this, this friend ruined my reputation and I have people that won't even 
return calls from me now because they believe him. It hurts. If you grew up Baptist, when you prayed the Lord's Prayer, you asked God to forgive you of your debts as you forgive debtors. And there's a reason you use the word debt and debtors. It's because when somebody has wronged you, they owe you something. They owe you a debt. Uh, It's woven into the language of forgiveness that's in the Bible. And so as we move along, actually, there we go. I think I'm on now. I want to hit, here's, here's, in case you miss anything today, this, this is where I'm going, okay? Forgiveness starts with a decision, but it takes time and effort. Forgiveness starts with a decision, but gang, it takes time and effort. It does. If you, if you brought a paper Bible, you can open it up to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 18. And as we go through, I'll put the verses I'm in. Uh, on the big screen, but Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and following. Matthew is a, is many, many scholars say the book of Matthew is like a discipleship manual for the early church, and the early church would use it as a, oh, you want to be with Team Jesus now? Here, read this. Um, be great if you could do what, what it says in there. Thanks. <laughs> and it was kind of like a three-year process, and you go through the gospel of Matthew. And when we get to this section in Matthew chapter 18, Uh, we get to the topic of what do you do with a repeat offender? What do you do with somebody that hurts you over and over again? What do you do? And and so there's this wonderful interchange between Peter and Jesus, right? And, And this is Matthew 18, verses 21 and following. Then Peter came to him and asked, Lord, how often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? Now, in the first century, if you were a good Jew of the first century... Uh, the way it worked was when you had a repeat offender, you were to forgive them the first time, the second time, the third time, the fourth time, you just stomped on their neck. Some of you right now are like, I am in the wrong religion. (laughs) I am so in the wrong religion. I need to convert right now and become Jewish. They got this figured out. In fact, there's a, a Jewish rabbi of the first century. This is what he says. If a man commits a transgression, the first, second, third time he is forgiven. The fourth time, he is not. And this was woven in. So, so Peter, when Peter is saying to Jesus, hey, boss, should I forgive the guy seven times? He's being kind of magnanimous. That's almost, that's more than double the required limit. Like, what a great guy. And then, of course, Jesus, being Jesus, does this thing where he turns it on its head. No, Peter... Not seven times, but 70 times seven. For those of you good at math, that's 490. But what Jesus is basically saying is, um, yeah, you just, it's countless. You keep forgiving. And Jesus tells a story to kind of flesh this out. Jesus is basically saying, your model, my model for forgiveness should be based on God who forgives people limitlessly. Um, And there's a reason for it, and we'll get into it as we get into the passage, all right? So verses 23 and following, therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. It should actually read billions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold, along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please, please be patient with me. I'll pay it all. 
And then his master was filled with pity for him and released him and forgave his debt. The Greek here is talking about 10,000 talents, roughly 2.4 billion, billion with a B, billion dollars. This guy squandered a fortune. There is no way he is going to pay this back. When he says, I'll pay you back, boss, that's a lie. <laughs> it's not going to happen. And so the guy, now, debt slavery was a thing in the first century. Um, let's say the guy had 21 members in his household, so it wouldn't be just the guy who owed the debt. It would be his entire family. So you could sell the entire family into debt slavery. You'd get about a talent a person. So if you're owed 10,000 talents, now you've got 21 applied to the balance. See, th this isn't going anywhere. Really, the only reason you would throw someone in debtor's prison is for the emotional benefit it gives you. The guy's wronged me. He's stolen me blind, squandered $2.4 billion. You're going to rot in debtor's prison. I feel better now. And you're going to have people in your life where that's the case, right? They've hurt you. They've wronged you. And just like the king, the master in this story, you're like, could we have word prison? Uh, could we have betrayal prison? I'm going to throw you there, stomp on your neck, and I'll feel a little better about it. So, so the guy begs for mercy, and the master, the king in the story, forgives this massive debt. Well, it, the plot thickens. That's verses 28 and following. But when this same man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed the guy by the throat and demanded instant payment. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time, be patient with me and I'll pay it. Does this sound familiar? He pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other, other servants found out and saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. And the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? And then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid the entire debt. Here's the sticky part. The mercy and benevolence of the king came with an expectation that it would kind of trickle down, that that mercy and benevolence that was shown to the guy who owed $2.4 billion would be shown to the guy who owed him $4,000. That's the monetary equivalent. So he's just been forgiven an unfathomable amount of money, and he turns around, and a guy who owes him four grand chokes him and throws him in jail. Now, you can understand why all the other servants get out of, been out of shape. I know you work at uh, jobs. I know you're in school, and you have an extreme, extreme awareness of when things are not fair, and it drives you bonkers, doesn't it? Not fair. That's not fair. Okay? Red alert. You know, and the nukes are getting ready to launch, right? Because it's not fair. And the servants feel the same way. This isn't fair. And so they go to the king, and of course the king... So there's a principle here. Namely, in this story, God is like who? The king. 
<laughs> okay, when Jesus tells a story, he's making a point. And he's wanting to make a point, and he's saying, God is generous. God is both merciful and gracious, and they're different things. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Uh, this week, I got my first speeding ticket in my entire life. Some of you have been like, finally. <laughs> and it's because I, I got asked to do something uh, and give a talk, and I was going through my talk in my head, and I, I was distracted. I was talking out loud in the car, and uh, I was going 22 miles over the speed limit. I had hit, right, that's big time trouble right there, right? So, so I get the ticket, but the officer, you know, he comes to the window and, you know, my hands are shaking. I've only been pulled over like one over time. And you would think at 48 years old, I'd be like, you know, I know cops. It's no big deal. And yet, you know, oh, here you go, officer. And it's just this young, he's 23, 24 state trooper, right? Okay. So I give him my paperwork. He comes back uh, or he, he says to me, you know why I pulled you over? I said, oh, I called, Yeah. Like, I was, I'm supposed to do this talk, and I was talking it out in my head, and I said, I know that to slow down here, I always do that. I didn't do it today because I was distracted, and when I saw your car, I was like, oh, crap, I'm in the 35 zone. And so, no, yeah, I was totally speeding. So he disappears, he comes back, and the ticket is only written for 10 over. He showed me mercy. I should have been busted big time. So, right, that's mercy, getting what you, you know, not getting what you deserve. So God is both merciful and God is gracious. God gives us what we don't deserve. We get awesome stuff, salvation, life. All, okay, so God is both merciful and gracious. And the implication of this passage is that we will in turn do the same. As people who have experienced mercy and grace, we pass on mercy and grace to others, but that's hard. And I want to get into the sticky wicket of it now, right? Forgiveness starts with a decision, but it takes time and effort. So if I could define for the, de the decision part of forgiveness, it's this, simply. Forgiveness is making a decision that somebody doesn't owe you anymore. They don't owe me. Now, that, that can be a very hard decision, and it can be a decision that you make five times, ten times, a thousand times, okay? But let me... Let me talk about, uh, and here's the kicker, right? Jesus says it in verse 35. That's what my heavenly Father will do to you if you refuse to give your brothers and sisters from your heart, okay? We are expected to forgive because God forgives us. Here's what forgiveness is not. It's not denying the evil that was done, right? There's a, there's a, there's a um, uh, Nat King Cole song, So why don't we pretend... That is not forgiveness. That's like something unhealthy, okay? We don't do that, okay? So forgiveness is not denying what was done to you. Forgiveness is not excusing sinful behavior. If somebody's calling you names, they shouldn't be calling you. you yeah. What? Oh, it's okay. No, that's not forgiveness either. <laughs> forgiveness is not pretending it never happened. Forgiveness is not glossing over the pain that you suffered. Oh, it's no big deal. I cry myself to sleep every night, and I've done it for five years. But really, it's okay. No, that's eh, wrong, okay? That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is not removing all the consequences for the wrong behavior. Somebody cheats on you in a relationship. There are consequences to that. Uh, someone's got an addiction 
There are consequences to that. That's on them, okay? Forgiveness is not overlooking criminal behavior. Forgiveness is not approving of evil. It's, forgiveness is not condoning abuse. Forgiveness is not acting if the sin never happened. Forgiveness, and hear me, hear me, forgiveness is not letting others continually abuse or hurt you. We talked about that two weeks ago, about boundaries, okay? Forgiveness is not pretending you weren't hurt. And this is really important, because I think some of us, we grew up in traditions where um, forgiveness was kind of this blank check, and we understood it to mean that, well, you know, I forgive them, which means they should treat me any way they want, and they should continue to do all the hurtful. And, Whoa, that's different, right? Forgiveness is a decision, that, and it's deciding that what they've done, they don't owe you anymore. It's more about you than it is about them, and I'll get into that in a moment. Forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation or restoration. The Bible talks about reconciliation and restoration, but forgiveness is not the same thing as that. It's not a magic trick used to force other people to become our friend again. It's a decision. It's deciding that whatever they've done, whatever they've said, whatever they've taken, they don't owe us anymore, right? I want to give you some practical advice. So how do you forgive? And I'm stealing this shamelessly from two men, Dallas Willard in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, and Andy Stanley, <laughs> two ends of the continuum. How do you forgive? Well, first, you got to identify the people that you're angry with. I've told you before that I'm emotionally challenged. I don't always know what I'm feeling. It takes me a few days to know, oh, I'm upset with somebody, or oh, I, you know, I feel let down because, right? Um, and so you've got to be able to identify the people that you're angry with, whether it's your ex-boss, whether it's your parents. Understand that when somebody has wronged you, they've hurt you, they have a hook in you, and you're connected. So everywhere you go, you take this offense, you take this hurt with you. It's not just you. It's you and dad who let me down. It's you and the coworker who stole your job. Um, and here's how you know if you're like, well, I don't think I'm mad with anybody. Well, do you have imaginary conversations in your head where you're explaining and laying down the law to them and they're groveling? I'm so sorry. Like, that's an indicator. Ding! <laughs> Ding! That they've wronged you and you're mad at them because they've wronged you, okay? When I was a volunteer, I was just a seminary student and I volunteered with uh, third, fourth, and fifth graders the children's director started spreading lies about me in the congregation because uh, I did a teaching on Genesis and I, I basically was like, look, evolution, non-evolution, it doesn't matter. The Bible doesn't tell us how. The Bible just tells us that God made everything, right? They interpreted that to mean, oh my goodness, they don't believe in God. So I had kids pulling out of my class because their parents were afraid to send them to the class I was in. I was mad at Lynn. I was really mad at him. And I would lie in bed at night, and Jenny would go, you're clenching your jaw. No, I'm not. Yes, you are. <laughs> I think you're mad at somebody, Max. I think you're mad at Lynn. No, I'm not. On the drive to Wednesday night midweek service, I would be gripping the steering wheel, 
And I would have the most wonderful imaginary conversations in my head where I totally reamed him out and told him what a fundy head he was and all this other stuff and, and where he would go, I'm such an idiot, right? All flags, right? That I'm upset with Lynn. Lynn's hurt me. He stepped on me, okay? So these are the things. Identify the people that you're angry with. This may take some homework for some of you. Step two, determine what they owe you. You've got to quantify it. Was it an opportunity, a raise, your childhood, your innocence? What did they take? Name it. Quantify it. You cannot forgive a debt that hasn't been defined. And then cancel the debt. You, you make a decision. You decide, Lynn, you don't owe me anymore. I forgive you. I will actually say it out loud when I get to that point. And the funny thing is, I'll have to say it out loud almost always more than once. It's never like, and you may be better than me, you may be so much closer to Jesus than me, but I found in my life, like, I forgive Lynn. And then like an hour later, I forgive Lynn. And then like three days later, Lynn does not owe me anything anymore. Like, it takes some time and some effort on my part, and I'm making this decision over and over again. Now, the funny thing is, this guy, like I ran into him five years later after this because he had been actually forced out of the church. Hashtag irony, right? <laughs> but when I, when, I, when I was talking to him, and he, he had the most beautiful wife, the most beautiful family, when I was at the, and it was at a wedding, and I noticed that I didn't feel the need to give him a speech. And I was like, oh, okay, I think forgiveness is... And what he did was a minor thing. There are big offenses in life. This is relatively minor. But so that's kind of, okay, identify the people you're angry with, determine what they owe you, cancel the debt. What do you do when all the emotion comes back? And it will, right? You can remind yourself, that's right, I've canceled that debt. Um, but there's sticky wickets involved with this idea of forgiveness. And I want to cover some of them, right? And I don't know if I have these on there. No. Um, how do you know, and these are whatabouts, what ifs. How do you know if you've truly forgiven? You no longer think about it day and night. You no longer talk about it all the time, right? So if somebody's hurt you, and every time you're getting together with your friends, you're bringing up your dad, like, and your friends are starting to say, um, hey, you should let go, that's an indicator <laughs> that the offense is still there. If you're not dwelling on it all the time, that's probably an indicator that you're in the realm of forgiveness. If it's coming up, then, right, okay? Uh, another thing, is forgiveness an event or a process? It's both. It's a decision, but it's that time and effort that comes out and where you may be deciding a thousand times over to forgive. Does forgiveness always lead to reconciliation? No. Forgiveness depends on you Reconciliation depends on another person. You can't control the other person. And for reconciliation to take place, there's got to be a genuine confession, genuine repentance, genuine forgiveness, a restoration of trust. And we're going to talk about that next week, how forgiveness and trust are not the same thing. All right? There's all kinds of ingredients in reconciliation that are different from forgiveness. The Bible talks about reconciliation, but today I'm talking about forgiveness, and they're different. They're different. Um, so no, 
uh, forgiveness does not always lead to reconciliation, and sometimes it's not wise. Uh, I have a friend who uh, ha- uh, divorced uh, their wife, and or, you know the two of them got divorced, and their wife is not uh, healthy, uses drugs, has some other issues, and they don't. When it comes to the custody part of the kids, the wife only has supervised visitation. There's a reason for that. Um, has he forgiven her for the stuff that, you know, yes, I think he has, but forgiveness isn't the same thing as reconciliation. What about the person who says, I can forgive, but I can't forget? Been there, okay? <laughs> a lot of the people in this room have been there. Again, it's a choice we make. Forgiveness isn't a feeling. It isn't an emotion. It's a decision. They don't owe me. It doesn't mean that we somehow wipe our memory banks clean. We're not commander data on the enterprise. I seem to have lost some memory engrams. Oh, there they are, right? And, you know, it's not like we can rip them out and just never remember. So you may forgive somebody something they've done and you don't have contact with them and you run into them in an event or they reach out and you get an email or a call or whatever it is and all of a sudden that becomes a trigger and you're like, oh, it hurts, right? That happens. That's normal, Okay. Do, do you have to say to the person who's wronged you, I forgive you? If they ask for forgiveness, it's always a good idea. Um, but you may not be ready to say, yes, I forgive you. Because remember, there's the process part of it. Um, but no, you don't always have to, to say to someone, I forgive you. Some of the times people hurt you, and if you go to them and say, I just want you to know I forgive you, their response is going to be like, for what? I didn't do anything. And then you explain what they did that hurt you, and they're like, I didn't do that. That's not hurtful. And, and now you're in an argument. <laughs> no, you did hurt me, daggummit. <laughs> okay? So you don't always have to say to the person, I forgive you. Um, what if they never confess or admit that they did something wrong? That's a possibility. Um, here's the reality, right? For someone who's hurt you in a big way, even if they were to show up at your door with tears in their eyes and beg for you to forgive them, could they, could they really give back to you what they took from you? No. No. They couldn't. Which is why forgiveness is more about us than it is about them. Forgiveness is more about us than it is about them. When you forgive someone... You remove them from the driver's seat of your car in life. See, when, when, when you're mad at somebody and they've wronged you and you haven't forgiven them, it's like they're in the driver's seat of a car, emotionally and otherwise, and they're taking you places you don't even want to go. Um, another good metaphor for that is the hook, right? They've got a hook in you and you're dragging them along everywhere in every conversation, Um, And occasionally you'll run into it. For those of you in the dating world, right? You'll meet somebody and you'll be like, whoa, the person that you said you were over, you are not over. Like, you should not be in the market. The hook is still there. You're still bleeding. (laughs) We need a Band-Aid here. Okay? This is how it plays out in life. Here's why this is important. We're told, be kind to each other, tenderhearted, Forgiving one another, just as God has forgiven you. We forgive other people because God has forgiven us. 
and we forgive other people because it leads to our freedom. It leads to our freedom. The Mayo Clinic. This is not the paragon of like Baptist or Christian or Catholic stuff here. This is the Mayo Clinic. The Mayo Clinic has an entire page on forgiveness. Did you know this? Because according to these doctors, if, if you have a grudge, if you haven't forgiven someone who's wronged you, it will, and I'm, I'm going to read, I've taken this right from their webpage on forgiveness. It will bring anger and bitterness into every relationship and new experience you have. It, you can become so wrapped up in the wrong that you cannot enjoy the present, and it, it sabotages your enjoyment of life. You become depressed or anxious. You feel that your life lacks meaning or purpose or that you're at odds with your spiritual beliefs. You lose valuable and enriching connectedness with other people. The Mayo Clinic. And then they go on to say, but... If you actually forgive somebody, it leads to healthier relationships. It leads to greater spiritual and psychological well-being. You have less stress, less anxiety, less hostility. You have lower blood pressure. You have fewer symptoms of depression. You have a stronger immune system. You have improved heart health and higher self-esteem just from forgiving. I think when Jesus said we forgive, he was on to something. It's how the world works. It's how life works. Jesus is right about this stuff. When you forgive someone and when you cancel the debt, they no longer owe you. They no longer have power over you. You're free. I've told this story many times. As I've gotten older, my respect and admiration for my parents and my wife's parents only gets bigger and bigger as I get older. Um, And I've told this story at Generations before. My mom, when she was two years old, She was not a wanted kid, and so her mother, when she was two, farmed her off uh, uh, to her aunt's house. And from two to 16, she grew up there, not wanted by that family, not really wanted by the brothers and sisters that were surrogate brothers and sisters there. And her mom took her back at age 16. And you would think if anybody would have a reason to go, Mom, you stink, right? It would be my mom. And when... When Nana Angel, that's who I called my grandmother, Nana Angel, when Nana Angel got to the point with her dementia that she couldn't care for herself, my mom stepped in. She flew out to Las Vegas. She spent a half a year helping her get her affairs in order and then moved her to Kentucky. And I remember having a conversation with my mom when she was wrestling about whether or not to do this. And, and she was like, and I remember saying to her, you know, a lot of people in your shoes would not ever even consider this. They would say, well, you're just getting what you deserve. Pushed everybody away. Didn't want me. How's that working out for you? See, my mom had forgiven her mom. And she was free to just do the things that she wanted to do, etc. So I want to suggest to you today that forgiveness, forgiving other people makes you a freer person. And I hope that, and and do you see how complicated this is? This is complicated, this isn't easy. It's simple, but it's not easy. But you can do this.